You're listening to the Rodolfo Rivas Project. My dad has had big conversations with other people around the world and here in Geneva. He loves it and he's all crazy about it. Remember to have fun listening to it, the Rodolfo Rivas Project. Trade is important and can help uh, solve many problems because it was about selling trade as one of these key development tools because the alternative is, you know, there, there's always that history of closing markets and being protectionist and, uh, you know, basically not trading as one of the development strategies that is there. So there is also this, this constant, um, I would say, need to make sure that trade has its place. Mm. Um, but more recently also, I think there is a legitimate concern that um, it would not solve everything. Um, and once again, I think it's fair to say that, but we shouldn't go to the point where we say we, we should stop trading then. Because trade shouldn't be to blame for all of those issues, right? If countries are not benefiting from trade, there, there are more things than trade going on. That was Tayutik Mena. I am Rodolfo Rivas, and this is my podcast. Welcome to it. Tayutik is a counselor at the Permanent Mission of Costa Rica to the WTO. He is a seasoned veteran amongst the delegates dealing with the WTO. I have been working with him for many years, and we have worked together in many negotiations, including the ITA expansion, EGA, and TISA. Since then, he has become sort of a celebrity in the WTO, thanks to his involvement in agriculture, a topic that is close to his heart. And by the way he describes it, it should be close to everyone's heart. In our conversation, we covered a lot. From his background, growing up in Costa Rica, he also talks about Costa Rica's strong interest in multilateralism. It was a great conversation. Tayutik is a class act, and I really hope that you enjoy the conversation. The Rodolfo Rivas Project is available on all major platforms or wherever you get your podcast. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Please help spread the word by recommending us to your friends or your enemies. A small act like liking, subscribing, and or reviewing is greatly appreciated. The views, thoughts, and opinions shared in the conversation belong to the individuals sharing them and do not necessarily represent the views of their employers. Just after the dawn, the morning's brighter. Start to walk. You'll find me on the road. Tayutik, thank you for... Finally, uh, being able to sit down with you, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. Yeah, me too, me too, Rolfo. I um, <laughs> and uh, I just I just wanted to say that I, I've been really looking forward to to be part of this project, and I also want to acknowledge the fact that you are indeed um, providing a, a very important um, history of, of 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 the WTO and of the trading people. Uh, which is exactly that, is telling the story of, of the people that raise their flags and that work on this environment so that uh, people that are not part of this environment can also uh, learn and understand a little bit more of what we do, where we are coming from. Uh, so thank you for that. No, and uh, thank you for those kind words. Uh, I, that's, I think, a byproduct of what I want to do. I just want to have like a great conversation. But if that happens to be the a byproduct and is useful to people, I'm really happy for that so thank you for saying that but i remember when we were when we were talking about me inviting you to the podcast someone we were at a reception and someone approached you like you were a celebrity because you are kind of a celebrity in the wto world but we'll get to that later where where does tayutik story begin Oh well, that uh, well, that's a long story then. Uh, <laughs> uh, because I would I will have to say that it begins with my parents, not where you think. <laughs> um, and because the first thing that I would say is that it begins with my name, Tajutik. It's not an usual name for a person that comes from Costa Rica, which is um, a country that speaks Spanish and has a long history of 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 being part of the of that culture. I would say, and Tajutik is not an usual name. Um, it is an indigenous name, mm -hmm. um, and um, I unfortunately cannot tell you what it means. I, it's, I don't think it's related to any sort of eagle or bison or any other sort of sacred animal, unfortunately. Um, but that, that also is part of the history, and uh, is the fact that my, my 
family from the side of my father actually has indigenous roots. Okay. And from the side of my mother, they are basically uh, farmers, uh, coffee producers actually. And um, she's a historian. So, you know, when you, when you find the, the, the blood and the history coming together, then you have a name like Tayutik. And I think, you know, part of my, of my um, life has been shaped by the idea of, of representing the history of, of this uh, melange, if you want to, to use the word in French, of, of those different perspectives of, about the history of, of Costa Rica, of its people, including the side of, of my family that, is a, a, that works the land, and, and the other side of my family that is, uh, has such deep uh, roots, um, uh, being indigenous people, right? And all that is uh, related to these interactions in, in a country that belongs to Latin America, and that, what that represents. Um, so yes, um, that, that also means that I was also always very interested in history. And on, you know, all the socioeconomic aspects of how cultures develop and relate to each other. Um, and this is why uh, we, were, we were talking a little bit also before this podcast about um, where my interest came into, into economics, because I'm an economist. Yeah. I was telling you that actually that was not necessarily my first choice. Um, because my first choice was indeed related to social science at the beginning. Um, but I was so interested in the economic part of, of how societies behave that my second choice was also anthropology because that's also how societies behaved in the past too. And tells, it tells us a lot about where we are today, right? So it's, it, it was a very interesting mix. Um, Fortunately or unfortunately, I, um, the university that I was applying to, which was also the University of Costa Rica, um, gave me a chance to study economics. So that's why I did. Um, but I always found that the other part of, of the social sciences uh, was also very fascinating. You know, the psychology, the history, um, politics, all of that uh, was also some, some very important aspect of, of my education. So even though I am an economist, by, uh, by profession, by training, mm -hmm. yes. Um, most of my career has actually developed not necessarily related to numbers, but about public policy. Yeah. Um, and, you know, <laughs> once in a while, still need to work on, you know, uh, with the numbers because uh, as an economist, that's part of the job. But uh, I'm more interested about what these numbers say about people than about the numbers themselves. So I'm not a very good mathematician. <laughs> Without me knowing a, a lot about you, I mean, we've known each other for Same. many years, but without knowing like the details, which I guess that's what we're here for, uh, I do see some parallels and some connections between what you're doing now to like your story. My question is, do you, when you were growing up and you were like kind of deciding, were you making these connections or, or these connections was something that came after? No, they, they absolutely came after. Um, actually, uh, the, the first job that I had after I finished um, my degree was on, on the telecommunications sector. Uh, we were opening the telecommunications sector in Costa Rica after lengthy discussions that were actually quite polarizing um, about the, the future of our country in terms of our interaction with international trade. Uh, we had one of the first referendums that I know of on, on whether we should approve an FTA. The FDA with the United States, the CAFTA, the mm -hmm. and uh, it how was in which year? Um, the referendum was in 2007. Okay, and uh, it was quite polarizing. Like half of the country was in disagreement about the idea, and the other half was really concerned about the impact of not approving the FDA. And uh, at the end of the day, the the idea of moving towards, um, um, you know, the, the in in the direction of opening. Uh, ourselves more to international markets. That's the what, the decision that, as a society, we took, um, led to the opening of the telecommunications market, which until that day was actually a public service, more or less. Um, so it was a monopoly, a state monopoly. So that was my first job. Now, if you ask me, were you an expert back then on telecommunications and its regulation? Definitely not. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but nobody else was because it was a monopoly. So there, it was not necessary for us to know about that, right? Uh, so we had to do a lot of learning. Um, but I found that challenge to be quite interesting because I found that that was where the future was in a sense. It was telecommunications, yes, but it was also about 
digitalization, about technology, about how once again societies can move forward. Um, and we had to do a lot of learning about other countries' experiences too, of course, so that we could learn from their success, but also where they failed in, in, in the same exercise, so that we would not repeat the same mistake. Um, once we opened the telecommunication market, then I, I once again moved to another completely different field, which I was on um, environment. Um, I, I worked on uh, as a consultant on um, environmental certification processes, um, and you know how developing um, certain certification can help you help producers, especially agricultural um, producers, farmers, but also in the tourism sector, um, be able to certify their their activities in a manner that they will be able to to, to engage with with consumers in a better way, right? Um, and Cosirc is very strong on that, so we have a long history of that, so I, I worked on that. And then, um, you know, I received an opportunity of the Ministry of Foreign Trade, and then I went, I just said, yeah, let's do that too. <laughs> uh, why not? Um, uh, but when you, were, when you were moving from one, at this early in your career, when you were moving from one to another job opportunity, was that a conscious choice? You were like, I, I learned what I had to learn here. Now I need to move on to the next challenge. Or how, how did it happen? I think it, there was a lot of, of that too. Um, I, I was really eager to learn about, about the new fields, right? Uh, so telecommunications was, was the biggest issue back then. So I, I, when the, the, the opportunity came, I just, I just took it. It was like, this is, this is something that I see in the future will be a big part of, of, of what the world will be about, so I want to learn about that. Um, then, once we opened the telecommunications market, and my job was not um, to, to continue that process, it was more about monitoring it, I thought, yeah, okay, yeah. so this, this is, this, I want to learn more about, about things, so I moved to other issues. Um, and then, you know, once the, the foreign trade ministry came and, and offered me the job, I was like, this is where I want to be. Because it is obvious that as a country, we've made that choice. We want to be involved in international trade and in, with the international community, be part of the international community, after the referendum particularly, right? So, uh, so I said, yes, of course. Now, interestingly, uh, knowing that once again, my interest is not on the numbers, but uh, as an economist, the Ministry of Foreign Trade was like, so you're an economist, you must be great with Excel. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did not want to disappoint them, so I had to be great with Excel, <laughs> which means that I had to learn very fast because Excel was, I mean, I was proficient, but um, every field has its own expertise, right? Yeah. So I had to learn about their Actually, just before now, I was dealing with Excel, and uh, it's a headache. <laughs> <laughs> like, really, like half an hour ago. Yeah. But, uh, but the funny thing that I am curious about is You mentioned that the referendum was in 2007. Yeah. I would have thought because when I think of Costa Rica, I think of it like a very open country, like a country that has already made this choice, like even way before 2007. Or at least that's the impression that I get. It's a bit uh, counterintuitive that it was only in 2007. Is that well, something that rings? No, no, I, you're absolutely right. Um, this is part of the contradictions of, 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 of Costa Rica because in one sense we are very open to trade and we had a long history of trading with the world, especially at the agricultural level. You know, we are excellent coffee producers and we have a long history of being exporters of tropical products, right? Uh, bananas, sugar, uh, ananas and uh, other, other types of uh, amazing fruits. Um, but... Um, That was the extent of our interaction with the world. Then we had, you know, the, the, we went into the textiles industry a little bit, um, but we were losing that competitive advantage very fast. And we were not, um, as many other countries in the world, we, it's not like we were developing FTAs, 
right? In the 90s, that was quite new. Um, all of us were engaging at the WTO level, and then it was all about FTAs. So now there, the country had to make a choice on whether we will engage in that type of conversation at, on FTAs. And in our conversations with the United States, they requested as part of those balancing elements of, of that particular um, FTA that Costa Rica had to open its telecommunications and its insurance market to foreign competition. And that was uh, one of the biggest, I would say, changes as a country because until then um, we hadn't made that particular choice. Public institutions were a feature of our development model. So that was a real change in how we will see the development of Costa Rica in the future. Will the public institutions continue to provide public service as a state monopolies or would they compete with firms, um, private firms in the same field, right? So we had to make the choice for telecommunications and insurance. But before that, Costa Rica always had that hybrid approach of being a, um, a country that was market-based, but with a strong presence of um, public institutions in, into a specific key markets, right? Um, and it was a, it it was tough. It was tough. So, uh, for my answer to that would be, you know, it's complicated. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Um, but the important thing from that history, I think, is that you know, in the context of that decision, which is. You know, it's a fundamental decision. Do we continue to open our market, to engage actively, uh, attracting investment, looking for you know new opportunities? Um, the country, as a democratic country, you know, the majority said yes, let's do it, and that's that's the model we've been following: attracting investment, looking for more uh, opportunities, market access. And we are doing everything we can to do that, FTAs. Um, yeah, so we are very pragmatic about that now. And I think that um, it has uh, turned out to be a successful approach. I think uh, Costa Rica has, uh, has a case study of how foreign trade can benefit a country's economy. It's like up there as one of the most successful stories. So I think that the, the country as a whole feels like they've made the right choice. <laughs> I think we did, we did, we did. Um, you know, and, and you know, 15 years later, now people are discussing, other, you know, in many countries, people are discussing about the benefits of trade and whether trade is bring all the benefits they thought it could bring. And we had that discussion 15 years ago in the context of that referendum. And one of the, I think, main conclusions from that event when, you know, once in a while this conversation is, uh, happens again at the political level is that trade can bring many benefits, but you also must do your own homework. It cannot be the only tool that will salvage all your issues, right? That, that, that will solve all your, all your social and economic issues. Um, we had done our homework even before we decided to do this, because we invested heavily on education and on health, and we had the social structure to take advantage of that. Um, you know, strong social institutions, strong legal framework, um, stability, social stability, political stability. Um, that, that was very important. So it's one of the reasons why we are taking advantage of all of this is because we were we had already the background to, to, to make it so. But, you know, it, it doesn't mean that trade will solve all the social inequities, right? We still have poverty in Costa Rica. We still have people that do not engage in all the, in all the industries and the sectors that benefit from international trade. Um, but that's not on the international trade side of the conversation. That's on the fact that we need to invest more on infrastructure, on education, on, on bringing those people uh, on board. Um, so that's, I think, our, our main challenge today. And I think that that aspect is also the one that is lost in some of these discussions where they blame trade or they say that trade is good, but maybe it needs to broaden to include all of these other aspects. I think that that's sometimes a bit of what is lost in the discussion. Yes. Uh, and once again, perhaps it's because um, we think, 
as trade people, perhaps we tend to sell trade as the solution for everything. That like, happens to me all the time when I go for dinner with other friends. That's what I tell them. <laughs> <laughs> you tell them that trade is the solution for everything? Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, because we, we're, like you said, we're part of this and this is like our world. This is what we work on, what we think of. Uh, yeah. But of course, like you said, like it is, it should encompass other things. It's not only this. The same way that you go see a doctor and maybe you have a symptom, but it has to look at the whole body holistically. Right. And, and now the, the challenge, I think, and, and once again, uh, that's pro probably, I wouldn't call it an issue, but um, it's part of the history of trade is that open trade is not the norm in the history of mankind. <laughs> It, it, had, it has come a long way to the point where it came a long way to the point where we could talk about free trade and 90s and the early 2000s was all about that. Um, so there is also a long history for the people that believe in trade that trade is important and can help uh, solve many problems because it was about selling trade as one of these key development tools because the alternative is, you know, there, there's always that history of closing markets and being protectionist and, uh, you know, basically not trading as one of the development strategies that is there. So there's also this, this constant, um, I would say, need to make sure that trade has its place. Mm. Um, but more recently also, I think there is a legitimate concern that um, it would not solve everything. Um, and once again, I think it's fair to say that, but we shouldn't go to the point where we say we, we should stop trading then. Because trade shouldn't be to blame for all of those issues, right? If countries are not benefiting from trade, there, there are more things than trade going on. Yeah. Um, so I think that, uh, as you say, we shouldn't forget that aspect of the conversation. Um, and now we are talking about environment and trade, for instance, and there is this discussion going on on how much trade can contribute to all the sustainability development goals um, and on whether the solution for some of that should be, you know, more protectionism and more subsidies, uh, right? And we must find a balance because, and once again, the history of Costa Rica is, is one key witness, I would say not witness, but even an example yeah. Of, of the benefits of trade and investment is there are a lot of things to gain from this but you not need to be coherent you cannot just say trade is bad and then um, but trade is good right you must be coherent with your approach to trade um, I think the international community especially in some areas of the world are still struggling to get that balance and like you said also this is cyclical it's like a cyclical discussion it comes it goes right now I think it's a very sensitive topic for my, for many, but it's part of the discussion right now. But let's go a bit uh, before, especially on your career when you were entering the ministry with Excel skills. <laughs> what was your, when you joined the ministry, you had seen, the, you, you mentioned that society, the Costa Rican society had like made this decision that we we're going to do this. Was that like your motivation, you said like, so we decided as a society, I want to be part of this. This is what you wanted to do when you joined the ministry? Yes, yes. Um, and I, I was once again, and after the experience of the negotiation with the United States, I was also fascinated with what may have happened behind the scenes, and between negotiators. How, was to, how could it be to sit at a negotiating table and, and be part of that conversation with another country on, on how this would, will happen in terms of finding the balance. Um, so I really wanted to, to be at some point there and see how this could happen. And, and what you, when you saw it, were you, were you disappointed or were you? <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, you know, there, uh, I, I was, um, as an Excel file guy, one of, my, one of my main jobs was to prepare the field. Yeah. So that, that's, there are a lot of things going on before people sit at the table, right? So we had to do a lot of you know, analysis on tariffs and profiles and sectors and industries and interests and sensitivities, which is you need to know about that too. Uh, that's how you create public policy. And I think trade, tra tra trade people are actually 
very well trained to actually do that, to do, to do public policy, because the whole process of engaging in a negotiation requires you to be really well prepared. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of evidence must go into, into the process. You need to look at the data and see what are the interests of your counterpart, which are its sensitivities, how can you find the middle ground on that. So we, I did a lot of uh, data crunching, I would say, on this, so that the main negotiators will have the big picture and say, okay, we will push here. We'll. So I was part of that, and um, I was well, that I'm not obviously the one being the big negotiator there, but I was contributing. I was part of a couple of market access negotiations, one on, um, with, with EFTA and another one with Colombia. So I, I was able to learn about that too. Um, and it was, I found it very interesting from the technical perspective. And I was able to also be part of the late, late last stages of those conversations when you, where you have the, the, the chief negotiators engaging in, in, in the final balancing elements. That is exciting. Yeah. That is really, really exciting. I would say when you're exchanging lists, that's more technical than exciting, I would say. Uh, but once again, I wanted to be a witness and be part of that history, and I think that I accomplished that, um, which turned me then to, to the WTO. Um, I had the opportunity to um, take all the courses about the WTO, go to a couple of advanced courses in regional ones, one in Chile, and then I applied to the WTO one of two months. Um, it was amazing, uh, an amazing experience. And an opportunity came to, to be part of the mission here in Geneva. So I applied to it. Um, the good thing is, of course, I already kind of had developed the profile for that to happen. And, and I was always looking at opportunities to, to also be part of that international community. So when the opportunity came, of course, I took it. Um, and you came, uh, I think that, uh, when was this? 2000? 2015. 2015. Yeah. I think that was like an exciting time here in Geneva. There were a lot of things going on. Yes. Was it uh, EGA? There were yes. a couple of negotiations. Yes, uh, exactly. Yeah, so I think that it must have translated well from what you wanted to do to what you were doing. Yes, no, it, it, it was, it was an, a very interesting moment because We had active negotiations on ITA expansion. Yeah. Um, we were beginning conversations and, well, negotiations on EGA, on environmental goods, and TISA was also going on. Oh, yeah. And I had experience on telecommunications, so I was also part of the negotiation, negotiation, negotiation team of the telecommunications chapter. Um, but I was also, also able to contribute, as I was the market access negotiator here in Geneva, uh, to the ITA and the EGA conversations. Um, so I also was able to be part of that experience. Um, the ITA was, you know, successful, although the EGA and TISA were not. I still learned a lot about that. And then um, at the multilateral level, we had, I think it was the last, we, I, could, I, was, I was part of the last um, push for uh, the finalization of the Doha round. 2015, before Nairobi, was the moment where everything was active. So, you know, we had negotiations on market access for industrial goods, NAMA. Um, services was also discussed. So all the, all the main issues were still very active. Um, and um, I, I was able to learn a lot. Now, I have to say, the first year in Geneva was very difficult because um, one of the files that they gave me was agriculture. And although I was part of the market access team back home, agriculture at the WTO is a very different animal. Yeah, agriculture, even the, the delegates of agriculture, they're like a bit different. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Um, yes, uh, agriculture is, is, is one of the, the heavy topics, I would say. And I think yes. that everything, everything that happens at the WTO is linked to agriculture in, why we're, in one way or another. So. I think that knowing agriculture gives you an advantage because you you see it from inside out and you see like maybe where everything is moving. Yes, I think, uh, well, that, you know, agriculture is a heavy topic. So yeah. I think it will also be a, a, an important topic for this podcast as it has been 
it, it is a big part of my work in Geneva. I yes. actually don't, I've never dealt with agriculture in my whole Lucky you. 12 years. <laughs> so I, I am curious because like the way I talk about agriculture, that's my colleague who deals with it. Mm. It's everything I'm looking from the outside to the inside. And some of the things that I hear like are a bit difficult to understand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah if, if we talk about subcultures, ag agriculture at the WTO has its own subculture. Yeah. And I think it, and, well, and, and like that, I think that there are many because, for example, I deal with disputes. Mm. The people who deal with disputes, they're also their own subculture. <laughs> so there are like so many. Sometimes I feel like the WTO is like high school, yes. and there are like so many cliques and uh, <laughs> different groups, and one doesn't mix with the other, and it's a bit. Uh, Actually, that's a problem, yes. I think, I uh, find it. I, I agree with you. Um, now, interestingly, and uh, now that you know the history of my career, um, agriculture as a negotiator came as a, you know, late in, in my career related But to that, trade. Like that, I, I thank you for bringing that up because you mentioned this from your background, your family background. This would seem like something that you would have a particular interest in. Well, yes, but I think, and, and this is one of the key aspects of agriculture negotiations. If you go one or two generations, Ever. everybody is related to agriculture, right? So that's the issue. That's one of the main elements of agriculture is that everybody that negotiates agriculture somehow is passionate about it at a personal level too, because you have to eat. Everybody needs to eat. And uh, that translates into public policy and into all, I mean, as you said, everything at the WTO is related to agriculture because everything in a society is related to agriculture. Without agriculture, there is no society. Uh, even though we will love, all love to, you know, just have conversations about e-commerce and about the future of trade, agriculture will always be there. Um, And also because it, it is also a big part of the history of the world and on how relationships between countries happened. So, of course, we have the history of empires and colonialism. That has also shaped um, the, interaction, uh, the interactions here in Geneva, too. And it's part of you know, the history of, of, of the conversations. And, but going back to the subcultures, uh, I also think that you know, if you spend enough time on a certain topic, And the WTO is, has spent, what, more than 20, 25 years discussing agriculture. It's inevitable that you will develop a culture, especially if you have no, no result. Uh, you develop, you know, um, the acronyms, the, langu the language, it's some lingo, right? Um, uh, you, even within the community, you have certain gangs or, you know, sub-communities, <laughs> sub-groups sub <laughs> that don't talk to each other either. Yes. And in agriculture that happens a lot too. Um, and I think that's one of the main aspects of, of, I would say, the changes that I've seen between 2015 and now is that um, as the Doha round fell apart, we had less content to talk about. And we went from, you know, the specifics about how to find solutions to uh, discussing narratives. And, and the problem with that, uh, it's not like it is a problem to have a conversation about concepts, about how to have food security, how to have um, better production. It's the fact that without the contents on how to translate that into WTO rules, you are stuck at a point where you are, you know, as a negotiation, what we are exchanging is narratives. I need this because this is my situation and that's, how, and that's what I need. Um, how to translate that into the specifics? We don't go there, right? So at the end of the day, we are just pushing it, uh, at each other our own narratives and our own point of, points of view without getting into the proper solutions. And the problem with that is that after a while it becomes quite toxic because it's not like I cannot understand your point of view. It's just that I cannot translate that. We cannot translate that together into a concrete solution that can be acceptable to both of us. Um, so I think we, 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 we went a lot into that and uh, it became quite toxic. Um, so getting, uh, getting out of that 
dynamic has been quite challenging. And I think that also, I remember having a conversation with you when you were talking about your view on some of these groups uh, and how it, instead of helping, it might be detrimental. Yes, I think, uh, once again, if you, if you spend 20 years in a certain negotiation setting, um, it can become quite strict, right? So this is my group, this is my position. If there is no incentive to change it, I don't change it. And suddenly this group of countries develop um, a quite rigid approach to the negotiations. And if it happens to everyone, nobody moves. And the problem with that is that, once again, if, if you go into narratives, it's very easy too, because you, know, you can find one group of members that considers that the most important issue is development, whatever that means. The other group considers that the most important issue is trade liberalization, whatever that, however that can be translated into. Um, they don't talk to each other much. They don't move a lot. And then what happens is that it is very difficult for you to find middle grounds. Right? So they get entrenched, not only in their positions, but also within their groups. Uh, so a lot of, uh, you know, I would say, if you want to move, it is very difficult because that may imply that you need to leave your uh, group position. And that comes at a high cost at the political level too. So the groups are also a situation that uh, may not necessarily allow members to find the middle grounds, to, to talk at, across groups. Um, so this is one, one aspect I think that is also quite challenging because it implies that somebody must take the risk and present themselves as, um, as middle grounders outside of the traditional um, way of negotiating, which is group to group. So it does seem that you have thought a lot about this. So what, I mean, maybe you mentioned it here, but do you have any other uh, ideas, even like uh, something that you have thought, maybe this can be something that can be useful to address some of these issues? Not in terms of policy, but maybe in terms of approach. Yes. Um, no, we, we thought a lot about this. Um, and what we found was that somebody had to take the risk. So Costa Rica did it. We presented a proposal on domestic support, which is one of the most difficult subjects in the most difficult issue, which is agriculture. And we did it alone, outside of our traditional group, which is the Kearns group. Um, and the proposal is a middle ground proposal. So it has a subjects where we even don't necessarily fully agree with but that we think are important for other WTO members and other groups of members that we are not part of. Um, that's, that was a risk, a huge risk. Um, it took a lot of convincing to, you know, to, to our group that this was necessary and that Costa Rica as a middle grounder, a country that is small enough, that has no army, that has a long history of relying on international organizations, could be the one to do that. Um, and so we did it. We presented our proposal back in June. Uh, it was very well received from a, the technical perspective and we think that people understood what we were trying to do, that we were really trying to build bridges uh, because nobody was doing it. Um, and I think in that context, it has been well, very well received. Of course, people will have concerns about some aspects to it, but at least the spirit of it it shows that members can take different approaches to the conversation. We do hope that by taking that different approach, um, we may find a solution. Uh, so we are in the middle of it, where we are talking about something that is happening as we speak, let's say. <laughs> so, I, because we always uh, hear in meetings that we have about critical, uh, creative approaches, but I rarely see creative approaches. This does sound like a creative approach. How was this, if you can tell me a bit of, about how was this crafted? How did this come to be? Was it an initiative that came from here? Was it a joint initiative that you discussed with Capital? Was it, uh, is that something that you can share? Sure, um, I can share some of it. Um, the, the first thing is, 
This came from Geneva. This, uh, I mean, the main evaluation, of course, uh, the assessment on you know the challenges we're facing, the the dynamics that we needed to change, came came from me because I am the delegate that is in charge of the file. So of course, I'm the best positioned person to know about this. Um, and after a while, after lengthy discussions, this has been going on for four years actually since since Nairobi, to, uh, since Buenos Aires in 2017, which was you know one of the biggest failures we had in terms of agriculture. Um, so we we had that assessment, and then it took a lot to convince our capital that uh, this was the way to go. Um, there was a lot of development of the technical aspects to it, a lot of study. Uh, we had years of consultations, um, you know, behind the scenes once again, um, on on the real issues that other members were facing. What exactly was their problem? Things that they cannot say necessarily um, in public. Yeah. Um, and we tried to bring all of those conversations into now a real text, where we say, okay, for this particular issue, we should change the rule like that and show how that will look like. Um, and it took us a lot of time. Even, once again, convincing our capital that at the technical level it was, it was a sound approach, but also that at the political level it was the right approach. Uh, because going alone with a proposal just signed you know, by a single member, it's a tough choice. It is not something that is usually done. Uh, especially by a small developing member like Costa Rica. And, um, but we, we were convinced that that was the way to go if we really wanted to bring some new dynamics and new approaches and show that things can be done differently. Yeah, but um, once, once again, it was, a, it, it was a long process, a lot of back and forth between Geneva Capital and, yeah. And I, I am also, something that I've said in the past to with your colleague uh, Jaime, is that it does, Costa Rica is a small country. It would be like the Switzerland of Latin America. Small, it has mountains, it's prosperous in the region, uh, no army. <laughs> uh, but uh, there are some similarities, and I think that that puts Costa Rica in a very unique position also in terms of policy is a middle grounder, in a unique position to be like this agent of change. And I think that Costa Rica has used this position really well. I mean, you're also leading a couple of initiatives like DR and uh, TESET. So I think that Costa Rica is a small country, but with a large influence. Is this something that is consciously thought of, of Costa Rica, or is it something that just kind of happened? <laughs> how, how is this? No, I think uh, I think it's it it happens organically, um, but also it is also part of this um, very clear um, understanding of our position in the world, because we understand that we are small. We know that the best way to defend a country without army is through strong multilateral institutions. So for Costa Rica, having the WTO, the UN system, is not only something you know, good to have, but also it's, it's a necessity. It's, it's a survival strategy. Um, for, 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 once again, for a country like ours, it is important to be, to be part of the conversations at the international level. And if we are in a situation where our voice, well, even if it is a small voice, um, has the opportunity to be considered an equal voice to the others at some point of the conversation, and the WTO provides for that opportunity, we should take it. Um, and I think that does, that also is a recognition from, our, from the people back home, from capital, that this is the right approach too. Because if we didn't have that, you know, that opportunity to be vocal here in Geneva, um, if, if our capital didn't give us that opportunity, then of course that wouldn't happen. Um, so there, there is also a coherent approach uh, to this back home. We do consider that the WTO is very important and that gives us the opportunity to project 
our 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 weight if if not the weight in terms of you know volume of trade population uh, you know economic power um project our voice so we use it uh, i also sense a, like not a bit like uh, a lot of optimism in you which is something that sometimes is not is not uh, really clear for a season delegate how do you maintain this like, sense of joviality and optimism because i think that it's a bit infectious even uh, really? <laughs> <laughs> uh, First, because I'm Costa Rican, you should go. <laughs> I've been to Costa Rica. So you know. I love Costa Rica. And yeah, maybe it's part of, maybe it's in the water. Uh, probably. In the coffee. Uh, <laughs> in the coffee. Um, well, first, because uh, we are proud of Costa Rica. Uh, I mean, and, and, and being proud of, of, I mean, it's not just an empty concept, right? It's about, once again, it's about the history of, 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 of my country and about what it represents and once again being very conscious about where I'm coming from and where we are coming from and we're very proud of that and so we want to share with the world our experiences and our points of view and um, once again also being very conscious about the fact that if we as a small country with just five million people we have the opportunity to bring that message to the rest of the world and if if we manage to convince the rest of the world you know, on something, it's, it's this small voice convincing 7 billion people. Even if it happens once every 10 years, imagine the sense of victory that you can achieve through that. Are you or are you not changing the world? And, I, you know, it's not like I'm not a, a skeptic once in a while. You know, it's, a, it's also a process. You need to be optimistic if you want to engage in international organizations. It can be very frustrating, especially if you are an agriculture negotiator. <laughs> <laughs> But this is exactly what I mean, because you, you've been dealing with these topics for many years. You've seen more failures than successes <laughs> in some of these. But I mean, yes. maybe the, the fact that you've seen some successes is something that also informs you thinking like, yeah, it, it is difficult, but it is possible. But I sometimes don't see this with some seasoned like, uh, trade people, mm. people who have been dealing with this for many years, mm. maybe myself included. <laughs> you, you become a bit cynical and yes. you're like, yeah, yeah, this is how it is. Like, this is the cycle that is going to follow and then this is what's going to happen. And then, but the reason why I ask is because I don't sense this in you. Like just, I mean, from this conversation and also from other conversations that we've had, And I just want to see, like, why? Why? <laughs> what is the reason why you haven't been, like, uh, drank the Kool-Aid to believe that this is, like, the, the other way? Once again, um, long-term perspective, I think. And, and acknowledging that it's just, you know, once, once I got this really in, into my frame, into my mind frame, it, everything became easier to, to process. The idea of international institutions, organizations, where people can come together from all over the world and find an agreement is very new in the history of mankind. That's not the way of doing business, right? So this is something that in terms of the history of mankind is really recent. And the idea that we can reach an agreement on, on something as important as trade is even more recent. Um, so we're talking about the WTO, how many years it has. It, it was formed in 1995, even though we previously had the GATT. Um, but now we have 164 countries. So how often do you find people that can come together and find an agreement on, on even one sentence? Seven billion people reaching an agreement on one sentence is a victory for history. Yeah, it's a miracle. It's, it's a miracle. Yeah. It, it, it shouldn't be the rule. It is the exception to the history of mankind. And the expectation that we can find an, an agreement, a multilateral agreement, every two years is... Unrealistic. It's unrealistic. But that's the expectation we pushed into the WTO. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't try to find multilateral uh, agreements every two years because, you know, we need to keep um, a certain uh, momentum, let's say, about this process. But... Uh, um, We tend to forget that even at the multilateral level, even the idea of having a multilateral organization 
that's that's an idea that we need to continue pushing because it's not we shouldn't take it for granted the idea of reaching agreements perhaps not on the most transcendental issues but you know on the functioning of the WTO on you know change the notification here and there or you know agree on this declaration or whatever is the world coming together on you know on things and um, once I, I take into account yes this is this is Costa Rica a small country being part of a process where seven billion people come together and agree on something when we agree on something that should be absolutely exhilarating exhilarating and we are taking that for granted so um, yeah when I look at it uh, there is no reason to be a skeptic okay and like um, what of you what you are saying sounds I mean, in different words, but it sounds also very similar in terms of message to what the DG says. Uh, well, I inspired her. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think that it is, and the reason why I say that is because it's good to have people like this, like everywhere, because it's not just one, one voice that's saying everything. So you have people in different places saying this, and then the message gets across. Maybe maybe that's more what we need because I think that sometimes with this uh, skepticism that is seems like the norm of human nature, <laughs> like we we lose track of where we're going. But I think that it is good to have this and to be reminded that it is mm -hmm. something that we can do, but we also need to fight for it. I think that that's the main message, and it's not being naive to be a to be professionally optimistic. Yeah. Um, people might, oh, you're optimistic, you're being naive. Um, I, I've been through many failures, as you, as you said, so uh, it's, uh, it's not like I'm naive about it. And that also because maybe, because I've also had some victory, I mean, I was with the ITA, I mean, we were working on it together. Yes. It was a big success at the time. But then like, I, sometimes I don't think about it. I think about, for example, EGA, it's like, ah, that didn't work. Mm. Or TISA didn't work, mm. but yeah. ITA, GPA, like the work with facilitation, yes. with fisheries, we've had like successes. We faced out export subsidies. Um, I mean, there are victories there. It's, once again, uh, expecting huge agreements every two years, some things will take time. It's also like when we expect Mexico to win in the World Cup. <laughs> been there, been there, <laughs> been there. <laughs> But, uh, so what about, so you talked about what uh, your career and what you're doing now. Like, what are your views on what we can expect for, based on everything that you're telling me, what we can expect for MC13? Oof, that's a tough question, right? Let me let me check the this, the paper I signed before. Or what? Or what? Like you optimistically would like to, professionally optimistically would like to see. Oh, that's a, a very nice uh, way of, of phrasing the question. Look, um, I I think we have two two main challenges that are of, of of a political nature. Nature. One is how to really bring the WTO into the conversation about sustainability. And that was, that's been there, right? And um, there are other members of the W, some members of the WTO that have their own ideas about that. But we do believe that this is a conversation that we should, as much as possible, try to move within the multilateral framework. Unilateralism on this uh, will not be positive. Um, even though the ideas behind the, the, some of these may be positive for the world, once again, as a small country, we do believe that the best place for this to happen will be at the multilateral level. So I, I do hope that we will find a good um, outcome on how to move sustainability and trade together at the WTO. And you know Costa Rica is convener of TESDI so that we can find these places, right? And so I do hope that we can get something more concrete at the MC13 on this in particular, a political statement that has more concrete elements there. Um, the second big challenge, I think, is obviously related to food security. The context is there, of course, right? Um, and I do hope that on food security, this will require more long-term commitments. 
Um, expecting short-term commitments for this particular issue perhaps will be too, too much too fast. Um, I think that the best thing we can hope for is a strong commitment with some clear ideas and principles and you know, concrete elements that can help us move towards the MC14. Because on agriculture, there is a lot of work that needs to be done and just six months will not be enough. And we need to change the dynamics of the conversation, bring more content into the conversation. And that will need to happen not only towards the MC13, not expecting necessarily results, but also after the MC13. We cannot go back to that idea that because the MC13 didn't bring any results on agriculture, we turn to square one. Um, we need to continue building. So we need to be so ambitious about agriculture and uh, food security at the MC13 that we shouldn't expect any result. That seems contradictory, but it is not. Um, of course, if there is any result there, of course, I, I will be happy about it. But uh, my point here is that this should not be the expectation. But because we do not expect any result at the MC13, it doesn't mean that we need to stop working because there will not be any result. On the contrary, we need to put even more work into it. Um, so that's, that, those are the two things. And in the middle of it, uh, there is always the issue of, of digital trade, right? About e-commerce, about fisheries. Um, so if we find two solutions for that, that would also be very important. Um, but at the political level, I think people will expect some messages there on food security and on, and, on, and on sustainability. And once again, the DG, I think she's also working towards that type of outcome. Um, yeah. Um, so that, that sounds optimistic, but also possible. <laughs> Which is the right balance. I think it's the right balance, and I think that that's what we should strive for. <laughs> but after this conversation, I do live uh, with a really positive... Uh, I don't know, like feeling about the international, the multilateral arena, which sometimes can be a bit, uh, I don't know, it can be difficult. When you're in the middle of it, it is. Uh, but, you know, from a broader perspective, from a long-term perspective, uh, you are part of the history of it. Yeah, and, and uh, I think that, like many of us, it's also, I, I was really interested also in what you mentioned about how this position came to be, because sometimes I think that when you talk to other colleagues, they feel like they cannot really affect the process individually. And like, because I've seen it, I've done it myself. I think it's possible, and you telling the story of how you came with this idea and how it was developed, you've also said that it's possible. Yeah. I think that this is also an important message for other people involved in this, to say that it's, Yes, it's big processes that involve, but you can actually do something. I agree with you. Um, and my personal experience, not in agriculture necessarily, but in some, once again, small issues in the broader context of the WTO, but when you, your proposal to update something at the WTO to bring better practices or whatever is taken by, by the committee where you are, or by the initiative where you are, um, that's you as a delegate bringing your knowledge, your practice, your views, obviously, you know, covered by your country, of course, into, into, the, into the WTO. Because, yes, everybody represents their own flags, but the people raising, the ones raising the flag are people. Yeah. And the human connection is still very important at the WTO. I think... Um, we cannot forget that in the context of the post-pandemic recovery is that uh, virtuality can get you so far. At the end of the day, people need the human connection. We need to talk to each other. Yeah. Um, and I do hope we, we can do more of that too. We have ideas of that too. Thank you very much, Tejutik. It has been a really interesting and delightful conversation. Thanks. No, thanks for inviting me again, Rodolfo. And um, I, I do hope that... Uh, we can continue having these conversations in the future. Yeah, hopefully we will. And <laughs> MP13 also. Right, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. This was the Rodolfo 
Rivers Project. I hope you loved it. Can you dig it?